Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host, Rob Richardson. Uh, this week, we, we continue our series for disruptors and innovators, and our uh, disruptor of the week is uh, Terry Booty, who is with Urban Farmers. You know, when you think about the economic development in this country, when it, in, in, in urban communities, uh, communities that have been ignored for a long time are now seeing unprecedented growth in real estate, unprecedented growth in opportunities. But those opportunities haven't been spread across to people that have been in those communities forever, particularly people of color, particularly those who might not have uh, the means or opportunities. And they've they've uh, often rented rented from people in in those in those communities. They uh, might have, might have even owned the places, but now. Uh, the taxes become so high because the rent becomes so high because the property becomes so valuable that they can no longer to afford uh, they can no longer afford to stay in those places. So that's created challenges for people in urban, mostly African Americans and Latino communities. Uh, now we're seeing gentrification where more people are moving in that have not been in the neighborhood for 40, 50, 60 years, and. On one side, of course, growth is always nice to see. But on the other side, we've seen uh, unintended consequences or depending on who you talk to, intended consequences of moving people out uh, who have been in that who have been in those communities for a long time. That's not happening in one or two places. That is literally happening all across the United States. It's happening. It's happening in L.A. It's happening here in Cincinnati. It's happening in, in Florida. It's happening everywhere. And you get really some of the same questions everywhere. They're not exactly the same, but pretty much if you go to any community and you're seeing these uh, growth opportunities, you will see people that are, that are starting to be frustrated because they, they feel, and I think rightly so that they're not a part of that growth. They're not necessarily getting the opportunities to be a part of the development. Uh, They don't necessarily get the opportunities to work on the construction and Often there's not the opportunity to get the jobs in those places that are that that are there. And so the neighborhoods look different as the opportunities come to the neighborhoods. Suddenly the people that were from the neighborhoods are no longer there and find themselves displaced. And uh, as I talked to my guest today, Terry Booty, he is actually somebody who cares about that, has addressed that and has taken his made his career passion on doing this. Terry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, truly a privilege. We are honored to have a platform to share this platform and be able to talk through some of these nuances uh, that affect communities of color, that affect the outcomes of our lives, um, and most importantly, be proactive in sharing some of those solutions that we have uh, been able to create in order to find balance uh, in these marginalized uh, places where people uh, feel hopeless and do not do not see. Uh, themselves a part of the future of their own community. So let's let, let's actually walk through that a little bit. Uh, but before we get there, tell people a little bit about yourself. You're from Inglewood, California, I believe, right? That's correct. So uh, Rob, I grew up in Inglewood, California. Uh, diehard Laker fan, down the street from the LA Forum. Uh, born in born in 1980, and so uh, I was privileged enough. Uh, to be able to go to some pretty phenomenal public schools, private Catholic high schools, and then ultimately uh, ended up going to Berkeley and studied architecture. And it was there where I learned uh, the tools to understand how community actually works, how the built environment truly comes together and the parts and pieces that make and shape our reality. Uh, from there, I worked in corporate America for, for almost 10 years, uh, building hundred million, $200 million projects uh, and making a whole lot of people, a whole lot of money for people that don't look like you and I. Um, Fortunately, I was recruited by Marriott uh, to be a part of their corporate development team uh, right around 2007, 2008. And a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Marriott used to have two primary business lines. Um, One was hotel management and the other was Uh, building fractional ownership. Uh, Long story short, uh, it functions very much like a REIT. So we would go into uh, marginalized communities or places where we would sell a vacation lifestyle. And I was privileged enough to be the youngest and the only African-American to work um, at that level. And what one of the impetus behind me starting Urban Farmers, uh, we were working in a small black city called Riviera Beach. And if you know about the South, uh, it's essentially divided 
like any other community, there's the east and the west side. And the east is where the beachfront properties are, where you drive across a bridge and it, it becomes this very exclusive, very luxurious lifestyle. And the west side is typically where African-Americans live and, you know, where you can find a corner store and a Popeye's chicken and anything else that, that kind of resonates that it's the hood. And for Marriott, we had about, we had little, just over $500 million invested in one little city. And so they utilized the nuances of my professional career, my ability to manage large capital projects, but they also used my ethnicity to their advantage. And unapologetically, we would stand up and say we were going to do all of these phenomenal things to help small businesses, to help black people um, be, be a part of this growing uh, ecosystem of, of Marriott. And the reality of it is we were very risk adverse. And so um, I had to do some soul searching and ultimately uh, we finished uh, a pretty phenomenal project, made about $200 million. And Mr. Marriott came and visited me and, and I realized when I walked with him that he was, he was just a man, right? He was just a person. Um, and he started from somewhere. And it, it gave me the confidence to, to leave, but also to understand that there was, there was a place for me um, outside and there's something else that needed to be done. I needed to be able to bridge the gap between these large capital projects that transform neighborhoods, transform cities, but also find a niche where people like you and I uh, have a place and a voice with inside this ecosystem. And ultimately, that was how we created Urban Farmers, Inc., and so I always get from the outside people asking me, well, do you grow vegetables or uh, are you building microgreens? And I say, no, uh, farming for us, urban farming for us is a metaphor. So farming is the cultivation. Urban is the city. So it's the, the process of cultivating the city. And ink obviously is the business. And so for us, if you know anything about our history, you know anything about our culture, um, Although the label was, was slave, our profession was farming. And so what we did was take the potential that this earth had and we would cultivate it in a way to harvest and get the greatest potential out of it. And so we apply that same type of energy and effort into our communities uh, today. And so I'm very proud, very, very proud to be an urban farmer. Um, and ultimately our goal is to create Inclusive, inclusive solutions to urban infill development that becomes balanced and, and creates wealth for people that look like you and I. That's both from a um, investor platform, uh, from a community standpoint, and, and obviously from a future growth and residual income sure. as well. So, so much to unpack there. Was, first of all, thank you for that. It was, that, that was great. Let's, uh, let's talk about your time at Marriott a little bit. And uh, I want to dive into that because the point, the point you just made, the made, that you made earlier about what they had you do there and what you learned from it. First of all, how, how, did you, how do you use that knowledge, one, to help people now? Because what you, well, the point you made earlier is that <clears throat> you, were, you were there to make money. That's the point of it. Uh, and you were there to learn. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what you learned from your experience there, it sounds like they were making promises about what they would do once they were given, I imagine, um, some things by the government, probably some special tax incentives, I would imagine TIF financing, something like that, where they would get some type of support uh, from the government and they would need the support, I imagine, of some uh, politicians and people in the area. So they would have to talk about what return would, be, would, be, would come with that. And they would promise things, whatever, this many jobs, I imagine, this investment in said community, this many affordable housing developments, whatever you say. Um, but you're saying most of the time that didn't come to full reality. And how, could, how did you take that process and learn from it? One. Two, uh, how are you comfortable enough stepping out there? I, uh, often when I talk about people that are innovators, uh, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You have to go out there and embrace struggle some. You had to, I'd imagine it sounds like a very lucrative career at Marriott and probably could have gone a lot further if you wanted to just go down the safe path of knowing what your job was going to be. 
how did you, how were you able to make that 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 take that leap of faith and just go forward when you already had, were pretty secure in where you were in your career? So two 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 very packed questions, I know. So I'm going to answer the second question first, and then I'll then I'll answer the first. Um, I have my mother is an educator. Um, my father was a sky cap. Um, my father would always tell me every day, um, they put on your pants the same way that you do, one leg at a time. So there was always this notion of equality um, that was instilled in me from very, a very early age. But the game changer was ultimately my wife. Um, a good woman could do that to you. I talked to her about what my future looked like. Right. <laughs> and uh, to her credit, uh, she said, I like you best when you are an urban farmer. Uh, she knew that I was miserable. And so, as you can imagine, um, newly relocated, not having, being fully acclimated, we literally took a step out in faith. Um, but if it wasn't for her ability to give me the, the leeway or to not be rigid in what, our, in what our life would look like in this kind of uncharted territory, I would have opted for the safer play. Right. So I always give her the credit because as you know, as a young man or as men, family is your number one priority. Right? And so when, they're, when they have a vested interest in seeing you fulfill um, your purpose in life, when they have a vested interest in understanding your heart, um, they will buy into the uncomfort. They will make uh, the sacrifices that are necessary to move in a different direction. And I say that because there are a bunch of black women that were behind me, right? So yeah. period, that, that's, just, that's just the bottom line. Um, hey, me too. If it wasn't for them, I, I literally would not have the courage nor um, the ability to say, hey, this is going to look a little weird. This is going to look a little shaky, but I'm going, I'm going to, to take a, a leap in faith. No, that's, that, that's uh, you know, to all the, all the other black men hearing this, uh, the most important thing you can do and find in, in a partner is someone that's going to support you and that wants to raise your game and raise your level up. Uh, you know, we, I can say this as a person who is, I, I found a good partner, not at your point of mirror yet, but I'm confident I will be. Um, when you find that, you know, you need to, you need to make sure you stick on that because it's not, uh, this other stuff, this, this stuff that you think is important goes away very, very quickly. I can attest to that as a person who's made some mistakes in, in my, in my uh, life when it comes to relationships. So that's, that's a really good point. So, uh, so I'll answer your I'll answer you. Then I'll answer your first, your, your, your first question. So, um, typically large corporations stay away from actual capital infusion from government, right? Because of the strings that are attached. What we really, what we really hone in on and what people don't understand is that we really just need um, the rules and or the regulations change to make our business plan work. And typically, we'll pay for that incentive. So for Marriott, it was about density. We needed to be able to go up another five stories. We needed to reduce our parking requirements. And ultimately, <laughs> we doubled down and bought another piece of dirt down the street for about $17 million. Okay. So for us, we were completely exposed in terms of yielding to local government. So the five men and women that sat at the dais truly shaped the way we were going to implement our business plan. However, they had no clue on how much leverage they actually had. Yes. They did not understand that without the proper entitlements, we would not be able to build what we intended to build. So, and it's interesting because one of the gentlemen that worked for Riviera Beach at that time, now he is the vice president of development for my company. But 
when we worked, when we were at Marriott, we wrote the city a check for $1.6 million to get our density bonus. So we weren't looking for subsidy. We were looking to pay our way out of. Of doing something sustainable. Yes. <laughs> Just to be straightforward. So I knew that the city had dollars that we paid for. So when I left my very first deal um, post Marriott, I tapped into those funds to create um, the first on the job training program uh, for ex offenders within the city of Riviera Beach. And I use it as a community development model. So uh, even though the even though they didn't really give me the whole million six, I was able to tap into approximately one hundred and fifty thousand dollars um, from the city because I intimately knew where the money was. Right. We I know where we rewrote the check. And then when I quit, I was able to go back to the city and say, hey, I know you have this pot of money. It's for economic development. Let me make good on my promise as a man, right? Not as a corporation. Let me make good on this promise to do what we said we were going to do. And that's really when I gained the true trust and credibility of the elected officials because where they thought they were going to see a a surge in job opportunities um, and small business development within the greater platform of Marriott, it was really that we were able to do some true grassroots similar to kind of a Habitat for Humanity type effort to go in and rebuild some senior housing and utilize, um, I would call it the, the fray or the guys that had just got out of prison um, and really be able to create this sustainable model. And so it didn't take a whole lot of capital to do it. It just took the willingness and the sacrifice of the people around us to be able to, do, to, be able to implement that program. And then from there, we literally grew it uh, and I'm, 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 I'm actually really proud to say this. We grew it to where now we build um, plus $50 million assets, right? So just think about it. Ten years ago, we were struggling to rebuild a single-family resident of a grandmother of, of five with a $60,000 budget. And because of that, ten years later, we're building a $50 million asset for people that look like you and I and will own and operate it. So for me, it was the, it was the seeds that planted to show um, community leaders, mayors, council members, a different way to approach community development by ultimately supporting an African-American developer that had a sustainable model that cared about community and then giving me what I needed to be successful, right? So access to land, access to incentives, et cetera. But it was, it was that process of proving myself that I, was, that I was committed to helping people first as opposed to making money is ultimately what allowed, what allowed the pathway to success. So you mentioned government having more leverage than they know. And I have, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but thinking about what leverage they have and how they should go about evaluating um, these economic development opportunities that are going to come to more places like Riviera Beach who haven't, they haven't seen it in a long time, but now they're, they're, what they have is valuable. So that, that, that means the first person who offers you some money is not necessarily the best deal for your community long-term. One. Two, there is, if we're honest too, there are some challenges. There's a lot of people that aren't like you that are saying the same things that you're saying, but when you, you know, peel back the, uh, the, the, tie, the curtains and you see what's actually there, there's no there there, but they, they want the resources from the city government. How, how would you guide someone who's in government through that? And what can we do to make a model like yours, not only maybe uh, expand your model, but help others who are trying to create a similar model? What do they need to do I, I find this to be a very great challenge everywhere. So I, so number one, number one, you have, to, so if you are sitting on the government side, number one, you have to ask the fundamental question, what were you doing in the community before there was an opportunity? Right. That's, it's challenging, right? So just, just hear, just hear me out. 
I would volunteer and serve and feed the homeless. I would go and speak at, at, any, at any chance I was given. I would go and speak to youth. I would do the small things that I could do to show that I was a true partner, right? So I just did the little things. If, and this was while I was with Marriott, right? It, this, this, my, my, my VPs didn't know this. My, my uh, senior uh, project manager or whatever you call it, he didn't know. But I would just go and just do the little things, right? Just so they could understand that I was, Terry was greater than the company that I represented. Um, but from an analysis standpoint, ultimately, you have to learn the process of development. You have to learn the process of economic um, development in order to understand not only the nuances of what's required to be successful, but then also to understand your leverage within the system. Oftentimes, government officials rely heavily on staff, bottom line. Yeah. And, and staff, don't get me wrong, staff is great because they've gone to school, they have the professional knowledge, et cetera. But, they're, but they, they also don't have a vested interest in shaping the outcome. So sometimes they're just agnostic about right. the results. But when you as an elected official actually understand all of the nuances and it takes some time. Like it, it's not, it's not an overnight thing to become an, become an expert or you're going to have to spend a couple of months digging into the weeds of a deal or weeds of an opportunity. Once you grasp it, then you'll have a much better understanding of why the developer or the business are asking for certain things or willing to pay for certain things because it doesn't fit their model or, or they need certain things changed in order to be successful. Um, I'll give you a prime example. Oftentimes we will pay the in fee of lieu of for affordable housing, right? I much rather pay the $500,000, the $250,000, the million dollars instead of providing the set aside for affordable housing units. Why is this? Because that fee that I pay is probably one-tenth of the actual cost it is to actually build or subsidize what you're asking me to do. And so while it becomes a revenue bump to your impact fees or to your coffers, ultimately, we're sitting on the other side of that equation saying, whew, man, we got away, <laughs> like, we got away um, from having a very expensive value proposition inhibit our business plan. So I guess hopefully my, my tidbits of nuggets of wisdom are just, if you're an elected official, if you're in a position of power, understand the nuances of why whoever it is, business owner, developer, contractor, consultant, why they're asking for something to be changed in a certain way. And once you understand it, then you can make a very informed decision. Yeah. To pick up on that point, one of my favorite books is the book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And he mentions that great leaders is not what they do or how they do it, but it's their why, which is essentially what is their essential mission and purpose. It's not, you know, based on what they're doing or how they're doing it. But like why, and he, he mentions uh, Steve Jobs and, and, and Apple, that their why has nothing to do with computing. It's all about empowering the individual to challenge the status quo. And everything they do and the decisions they make are all moved by that why. You know, so what I hear you saying is understanding the motivation and if it's, uh, for that developer and seeing if it's beyond just simply trying to get a development and try to make as much money uh, as quickly as possible. Making money obviously has to be part of the process. We're talking business and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's your only essential focus, you're going to have more development, but less opportunities for your constituents. And with that, and with that, it gets into why we, you talked about affordable uh, housing and workforce development housing. I want to really dive into that a little bit. I believe that's one of the, the central challenges that we're having 
in America, when people uh, discuss income inequality, or they talk about la- uh, uh, lack of opportunities or, 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 or lack of an ability to uh, be uh, mobile and come out of your situation if you're living in poverty, it's education is a part of it. We know that, but it, that's not the only thing. It's also transportation and it's also housing and, and where you are located. And as we're seeing this development in urban communities that have traditionally not had opportunities, uh, the opportunities are coming, but people that, uh, that don't have a lot of money, don't have means or don't own the homes that they're in, or actually, even if they do own the homes, the fact it's becoming unaffordable to live in these areas. And that is becoming a crisis that no one's really paying attention to. So talk about how you focus on that and what cities you've talked about a little bit. You've talked about it a little bit that that cities shouldn't be focused on a one or two million dollar payment. They should be focused on the payment and affordable housing in the long run. Talk about what you've done to, to, to convince cities of that and what cities should be doing uh, to really look at this in a more sustainable way. Correct. So, so Rob, I, it's 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 it truly is it truly is a blessing and a curse, right? When you when you when you fundamentally start to understand why your neighborhood looks different than the neighborhood um, that you aspire to to live in or that you go and shop in, right? So, just just breaking it down on a very fundamental level. I grew up in Inglewood, California. The Vons grocery store down the street from my house. My father would never go there to shop. We would drive to Redondo or Manhattan Beach to Bristol Farms because the produce was better, right? And my father's point was, I work really hard for my money. I wanna eat quality food. So I'm going to drive you know, five and a half, six miles outside of my nucleus, be able to do that. And I thought that was normal, right? I just, it wasn't, I never, I never questioned it because, until I became um, a young adult and ultimately started to explore that question and, and, and really, drill down on that question in school. But ultimate, but, but the, 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 the impetus behind it is that we don't value our neighborhoods the same way that other cultures do. It is not until, it is not until it's at its very bottom, right? It is at this very, the, 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 the life has been sucked out of it. And some, excuse my French, some white person comes in and says, I'm going to make it look, feel different and better. Then we cry out to the masses, gentrification, this is unequitable. We, what are they doing here, right? So ultimately, the first part of it is taking responsibility for how we view ourselves and how we view our community. Oh, wow. We always have lived in the nucleus, in the heart of cities, across the United States. We've always lived in the places where transportation and times of commuting were less because because of segregation, right? We were forced to live there, right? So they gave us, they pushed us off in this corner and said, this is where you're going to live because inherently it was just racism, right? So South Side, East Side, West Side, this, these were our neighborhoods by force. We got a little education, we got a little money, and you know the, how the story goes, right? Moved out away from those places. Period. Yep. Right? But the value of being there was that whether you were the janitor or the dentist, the school teacher or the lawyer, right, we were all together. So you didn't just have the, the have-nots in one location. You had upwardly mobile African-Americans, middle-class African-Americans, and you also had poor working class people all kind of in a centralized area. So point number one is we have to love and view our own communities as the treasures that they are. That's number one, right? Yes. From a policy standpoint, an implementation standpoint, we're at that, again, at that precipice where I'll use West Oakland as as a case study for my next point. I'm partnered in a deal. We are partner, Urban Farmers is partnering a deal with a company called Suda. Suda is ran by Alan Dones. He historically has been one of the thought leaders and families that have built Oakland 
over the last 50 years. It's a $700 million project. It's the largest transit-oriented development in the Bay Area, right? I love Alan to death. He's a great guy. But Alan faces, I don't call them black hurdles. I call them small business hurdles, right? Where you need cash to get to the next level. Yes. And so in this instance, I, what, we didn't go to the government and say, hey, how do we leverage this opportunity? Or can we just be the face of the deal? What we did was utilize, I would call it the native sons of Oakland, right? So you have Josh Johnson, Marshawn Lynch, Marcus Peters, right? These are men that have privilege to be in the National Football League, literally good stewards of their money, right? Like saved a bunch of their money and have already been doing inherently philanthropic things within the city of West Oakland, within East Oakland, doing the, the educational impact, the turkey drives, the backpacks, doing all of those types of things. So what we did was say, hey guys, if this is truly where your heart is in community, here's the greatest opportunity to shape the next 50 years of what your city is going to look like. Because we understand the nuances of development. You have a heart for community. Let's invest in one of our own sponsors, one of our own developers to create and continue to own the most transformative development in the city. Right? So my, my point is, is that it took us, <laughs> it took some time, but once the black athlete started to understand their role and their power with their dollars. It removed the barriers between the financial handlers, between the, the oligarch, and they were able to infuse cash into a deal and own a part of a deal in concert with another developer, a black developer, that now they can say, 50 years from now, we will still own and operate this project. That, in my opinion, is the way in which we are going to continue to shape our communities. We have to be willing to support each other in a way that takes on a little bit of risk, right? Not it takes, it, ta it takes some risk. It takes some risk. I think you got to say that and make sure that it does. And it's going up against people that don't want you to do that. You mentioned some really important things. I'm sure the handlers push back. I'm sure, I'm sure the staff push back to cities because there's a natural built up mistrust, whether we say it or not, when it's someone that looks like us that this is, this is a game, this, they're shysters, they're not real developers. Whether they say it or not, they, they say it without saying it. And, right. and, 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 and overcoming that. Talk about that process to whatever extent you're comfortable with overcoming that so we can learn from that. Because I think that's really an a valuable lesson to learn from. So Rob, so I'm gonna, so I, I have some intrinsic relationships. So I'm going to try to tell the story, but hopefully you can connect the dots so it won't be uh, too explicit. But That's fine, however you're comfortable. If you've ever, if you've ever sat around uh, Marshawn, he is a very intelligent man. He's very intentional, but he's a, he's a funny dude. Like he's, he is, a, I mean, he is funny by nature. But when yeah. it comes to his money, he's not funny. Like it all, it, all, that joking, all that joking stuff goes out the window. Um, it took us eight months. It took us eight months and probably 30 conversations between his financial advisors, two advi financial advise advisement teams, two different lawyers, um, and the deal almost fell apart. Yeah. Primarily, and, and, and primarily because it was the typical First of all, who are you guys, right? Number one, like, who are you? And because we didn't have, just say, the Magic Johnson reputation, right? Like, we weren't known in the industry. Or you weren't LeBron James, so you weren't like one of the .001%. Yeah, okay. Correct, right? So that, that, that was discounted at the beginning. And then what we realized as well is that they didn't internally have the tools to analyze the opportunity, right? Like, they, right. 
they weren't equipped to say this is a good or bad deal. But the one thing I will say to give those guys credit, once they realized Marshawn was committed to, to, the, to the effort, they started to quickly um, find people within their inner circle that did have the skill set to analyze the opportunity. In other words, there was a willingness to make it happen, right? Once, the, once, once, once they were committed, then everything else was, okay, now how do we ensure that, number one, he doesn't lose money, and number two, that there are metrics in place that are commensurate with the risk that we are taking. So yes. I, don't want, I, don't want anyone, I don't want anyone to think that this investment was truly philanthropic by nature. No, he, they will make a decent return, more than decent return on their investment. Sure, nothing wrong with that either. Period. Um, but the, the process was breaking down those barriers within that infrastructure to get them to see that we weren't Cousin Pookie, it wasn't a rib shack, it wasn't a barbershop. We're talking about shaping something that is inherently the reason why these men have been fighting in this profession for so long, right? If they can change how they shape the next 50 years of their community, why wouldn't you give them the opportunity or find a solution to allow them to invest? And, and what I realized is that then we became, we became the thought leaders and advisors to be able to show the financial advisors how to do this for their other athletes, right? So, right. So imagine they talk to the same type of people all the time. And we realize like, oh my goodness, it's just because we're not at the table and there's not, we haven't created a table for them to sit at. So we have to build out the infrastructure for them to participate. And this is, so it was a two way street, right? It was like, oh, you've never heard of this opportunity and you've never heard of us. So now we have to meet in the middle and now that you see that it works, now you can bring other athletes and other like-minded individuals to this, to this platform to be able to do this in, in a city that's, that means something to them. Oh, that's a, such a great point. So many things to unpack from there. Uh, I had someone on the show, uh, a company called Nehemiah Manufacturing. You and I talked about this before the show. And they hire returning citizens, people that have committed crimes, but did their time, came out, and have found that they were committed once given the opportunity and once having the proper support and ecosystem around them. And I know your company does that, but, and I want to I talk about why you do that, but bring in what you just said. In order to solve a lot of these issues we, that, that are going on in, in, in communities, in our communities in particular, it takes uh, that term that I learned from them, conscious capitalism. Like I'm for capitalism that is working, that is actually investing and giving people opportunities, not just figuring out how much money and how much value it can suck and capture mm -hmm. is actually figuring out a way to create value and, and make money, but you can make money and create value without capturing all of it. And that's what uh, it seems like your model was doing. And so uh, I, I want to talk about that frame of thought in, in hiring returning citizens. A, why you think that's important? And what results have you seen from your business on the other end because of it? So number one, um, so I'm just going to say shout out to the reentry center uh, in Riviera Beach. They were my, they were my first, uh, my first point of departure to understanding uh, recidivism, to understanding how many black men come home with not a roadmap or understanding of how they're going to change their lives. Right. So I, I just, let's just, I just need you to hear me out for a second. You literally come home from prison after 17 years, you used to sell dope, you beat up somebody, you did whatever it is. They let you out. They give you $65 and a bus ticket home and you have to fend for yourself. So you survive prison and I'm not, I, this isn't a debate about, uh, if prison is, is an actual re rehabilitative uh, construct in itself. But you and I both know the reality is you have to survive. You have to survive. Oh, you definitely have to survive prison. Right. So at the end of the day, these men and women 
they get home, they're lost. They don't have, a, honestly, a clue about how the world has truly changed. And now, they're, now they have to become productive citizens, right? They have to earn, earn a living and start to contribute to a household they've been gone from for the last 15 or 17 years. They have to um, start to pay taxes and develop a skill set that's legal, right? That's legal for them, to, for them to earn an honest wage, right? So these, it, it's not a cry out to say the odds are insurmountable, but nine times out of 10, you're going to go back to doing what you did before you got out of prison and you're going to get caught and you're going to go right back to prison. So recidivism rates are probably at, right, let's just call it 85%. So we look, we look at hiring ex-offenders as a responsibility, right? It's a responsibility I have as a black man, right? I was privileged enough to be able to navigate my way through life where I didn't die early and I escaped the, I, the concept of going to prison. But there are many men and women that did not. And so now they're home and they want to do something positive, but they lack the skill set. And so for construction in particular, it is one of those few industries. And again, hopefully I, I create racial sensitivity in what I'm about to say. But for white boys, they can become superintendents and make $150,000 a year and never go to college, right? Because they've been doing it since they were 17 years old. They first started off as a carpenter, then they ran a crew, and now they're running and building these assets uh, for companies because they understand the sequence of construction. They know how to relate in the field. They get it, right? So construction is one of those industries where it's not a high barrier to entry, right? You don't need a master's degree in finance. You don't need a, you don't need a certificate in nursing. You just really have to start to, to do the actual work. And so for us, we used, we used community development and rehabilitation of, of local assets um, as a training model. What we found was twofold, that when the guys got in the field, number one, they weren't cooped up in the office. Number two, they, their, their, their intelligence or, or, or intuition started to kick in, right? So you're strong, you know, you, you know how to work hard, you've always hustled hard, so now you're able to apply it in an industry or in a, in a trade or a profession that, that, that rewards um, hard, just straight up just hard work. What we had to do was kind of introduce the vocabulary and some of the technical aspects of construction so they can connect the dots and speak the language um, of our industry. But just as being resilient, black men and women, putting them in that environment, they were able to, to connect the dots and make it work. But the part that I was not that I didn't know what would, and this is only through the grace of God, the only part I did not realize was that when they started to restore a home, when the paint went on the walls, when the towel went in, right, there was an internal sense of pride that they had, right? I built that. I did that, right? There was that euphoric look of like a kid that finished their first science project that sit back and say, man, I, I built something beautiful. And now I'm known because I've been going to this job every day in the middle of the hood where I used to sell, where I used to sell dope on the corner, right? I used to sell dope on the corner down the street. But now I come to this hood every day. Ms. Jenkins knows that I'm a part of a program and I'm building this house. Wow. My uncle knows that I'm over here doing something positive. So now there's this sense of pride that they've never had before because they're associated with something extremely positive. That is the je ne sais quoi. That is the part you cannot replicate. I did not have, I would be lying to you and said, I knew that was going to happen. That's awesome. That restoration, that process of restoration restores something within them. And they saw themselves, they were, these men and women saw themselves greater than what they were before. And so prison was the last thing, right? going back to that lifestyle was the last thing that was on their mind. They wanted to be able to put that same hustling mentality and be able to, to become the new electrical company on the block 
or to be able to be the new landscaping company on the block, right? Because you have to understand, we've never really ever fit in a box, right? We've never fit in this construct. And so now they're like, okay, I have this new skill set, I have this new interest, interest, but now I can come, I can apply all the things I know inherently about running a business or uh, hustling, right? You know what I'm saying? Like hustling, I can apply it to this trade or this profession. And for us, man, it, it became our differentiating factor, right? It, was, it, it became the thing that set my company apart when I'm able to go into a community and talk about equitable development or restorative justice. I didn't have to say it's a theory. I could point and say, no, we do it. This is, a, this is inherently who we are. And from a commissioner and council standpoint, that is what allowed us to get greater opportunities than our counterparts or to be able to negotiate terms that were more favorable for us because they inherently knew that we were going to do something that our counterparts would not. And I I want to address the the concept of risk, right? So I'll talk about it from a corporate standpoint and just a, a straight up. Yes, they are criminals. Yes. This isn't the the kumbaya situation. They are, there are men that have made up their minds, men and women that have made up their minds that they're not going back to their lifestyle. And there are other men and women that are still on the, on the precipice, on the cusp, right? Still trying to figure it out. And some of it, some of them take advantage of the situation, but overall the positive far outweighs the negative. The idea of employing a, an ex-offender, the positive benefits that we as an African-American company are able to differentiate ourselves far outweighs the negative of the guy, one of the guys stole some tools from us one time or, or maybe not everyone, um, we, we, we have to create you know, unique situations because they can't all go on to the insurance or the, the, the insurance the way that the, a typical employee would. Um, well, some, there are some things you have to build into it because it's, it, there are some, there's, there's differences. Uh, an important lesson that I've learned, and I haven't always n- known this, and I'm not saying this to correct you, I'm just saying it's just something that I've learned over the years is that uh, you know, the language is important. I always, uh, I learned to call them returning citizens because uh, once they're out, once a person's out, they shouldn't be defined by the lowest point in their life or the mistakes that they made. And, you know, I've learned to why that's important. Uh, and I've also learned that, you know, people have been, uh, while they may have made mistakes, lots of people have made mistakes and some don't have the same results. And that doesn't, so everything is, uh, I, I don't judge a person's worst moment by, uh, as, as, as being representative of their entire life. And yeah, we have to give people opportunities uh, because we know that the, this construct is inherently unfair and that people have been targeted because of color, because of the la- uh, lack of resources. And so in order to have this sustainable change in our communities, uh, for those who have had opportunities, we have to reach across. And so I'm very glad you have that mentality and that you have that point of view. As we get ready to wrap up, a couple things. I have some final questions to ask you, and then I'm going to let you go. But I do want to um, connect you with a few resources and talk more about what we've talked about going forward offline. Uh, one, I, I think there are many opportunities for you and for your company to consult with cities about just how to approach this, because uh, the elected officials aren't going to, most of them, I'm, I'm not going to make an overall generalization, but I know elected officials, and most of them, Either don't have the time, <laughs> they're not going to have the time and capacity to learn development at the level that probably is necessary to have the impact. But what I do think could be an idea, something maybe we can explore is how do we package some of your knowledge in, in, in a way that they you know, could consult because they consult with other folks for many things and, and they can learn in order to make sure that uh, we have sustainable development happening in, in our communities. I, I love to talk more about that. Um, I would also like to connect you uh, to connect you with the Alliance for Safety and Justice. They're actually a sponsor of this podcast. They do a lot for returning citizens and they love to work with employers uh, that are interested and have a and have the empathy to want to look at uh, folks 
and give them an opportunity and give them a chance uh, once they've been infected, affected by the criminal justice system. So uh, definitely looking forward to connecting you more with that. Uh, so let, let's actually, I want to get, I want to just uh, ask some kind of final questions here. Uh, let's say your house is burning down and your family's okay. <laughs> what do you take with you and why? You can only take two things. What do you take with you and why? Family's okay. Right. So I'm going to take, I'm going to take my father's brush. Um, okay. I, there's a couple of keepsakes that I have from him. One of them is a hairbrush. Uh, it's just, it's just fundamentally for me, it just represents a place of safety um, and, and his love and affection for me. So I would, I would, I would definitely do that. Um, and then I know this sounds crazy. <laughs> Doesn't sound too crazy. Go ahead. Say it. I know this sounds crazy, but, um, I, I probably, I probably would try to save a few of my, uh, pictures with my candid photographs with my wife. Um, things that I know that I could not, I could never replace, right? I can buy her another handbag, buy her some fancy shoes, but I would grab photos. Uh, we've created some really good memories. And this is before the digital age, right? This is before there was cloud, cloud computing and all of that. So I know um, those are probably be the two things I would grab from my house. All right, final question. What did you want to be when you grew up? And what do you want to be now? <laughs> it's interesting. I told my wife this, we just literally had this conversation. I'm one of the few men and women. I'm one of the few men that said, when I grow up, I wanted to be an architect and a builder. And I am. Um, I've, I've, I've been in love with this since I was uh, in second grade. I never wanted to be a basketball player, although I'm 6'3", uh, 280 pounds. I've never wanted to be a professional football player. I always wanted to be a developer, and I've created a company, Urban Farmers, to do just that. Well, that, that is awesome, awesome story. Terry Booty with Urban Farmers. <laughs>